right, we are in Philippians 2. I was, uh, I was complaining to my wife, as I sometimes do, about how it uh, seems like uh, reading scripture is becoming less and less of a uh, priority. Uh, and so for us, this is one of the reasons we, we teach this class, uh, is to make sure we have a space where we are really digging deep into scripture, uh, where we are treating scripture not as something where we can pick a few verses and kind of bounce around with it, or you know, stitch verses from various places together. But in this class particularly, what we're trying to do is stick really closely with one, one chapter uh, and one line of thought and really follow where Paul is going closely. And it can be difficult work, but I think very re- rewarding work as well. So Philippians 2, uh, right before we get into chapter 2, Paul has referenced that they are suffering in Philippi, uh, the church is. So he's going to talk to them a little bit about suffering, a little bit about unity in the midst of suffering. Um, so with that background, let's get into chapter 2, and we're going we're to go slowly through these, at least with me, the first 11 verses, and then I'll pass it over to Hilton uh, to take the latter half. So, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mine. Uh, the language there, if, I'm in the NIV, um, it can probably better be translated as since. Paul isn't saying something like, you might not actually have unity in the spirit or encouragement in Christ. Uh, it's more like saying, since, we take this for granted that you have this kind of unity uh, and this encouragement. Um, even that opening phrase there, encouragement from being united with Christ. Uh, as Christians, sometimes we take for granted that this is just a given. We're united with Christ. But this is quite an encouraging thing if we actually stop and, and uh, are reminded of what a shocking statement this is, that the one who has overcome sin and death has been united with us. That is quite encouraging. Uh, death is not the last word. Sin will not have uh, victory over us. Uh, then later in verse, same in verse 1, um, NIV has common sharing in the Spirit. Yours might have fellowship or partnership. This is that uh, word that got uh, really popular a few years back, koinonia. If you have uh, koinonia in the Spirit. For Paul, this partnership language is language of, of unity. And it's not unity based on worship preferences or political leanings or kind of cultural uh, bias or whatever it is. The, the unity, the partnership of the church is based on the spirit of God. Um, and sometimes our division might be a, um, a sign that we are not united where we should be united. So verse 2, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Like-minded doesn't mean uniformity of thought. If you've read enough of Paul's letters, you know that uh, he gives room for disagreement, um, disagreement about eating food sacrificed to idols, for, for instance. Uh, but as we've learned in Philippians, uh, being of one mind is about having, he's about to even say even more, the perspective of Christ. Um, not that kind of omniscient perspective, but you share the values in the mission. You are united because this is what your life is about. You are focused on the gospel and on Christ, and other things are secondary. Uh, This is what the one-mindedness is about. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. 
Uh, in Greek, the language of conceit, kenodoxia, uh, it's, it's literally like empty glory. Don't do things out of empty glory. It's kind of interesting is uh, when he's about to get into this beautiful hymn about who Christ is, he's contrasting empty glory with Christ who, almost the same language, empties himself and gives the glory to Christ. This is the proper perspective. Not empty glory, emptying oneself and giving the glory to Christ, or giving glory to God. Um, as he calls people to humility, uh, we, 21st century Western culture, view humility as a virtue. That's a really humble person. That sounds like a good thing. First century Greco-Roman world, humility is a despised characteristic. They live in an honor-shame society. You want to increase your honor, decrease your shame. You're not going to do things uh, that are going to make you look lower status in that society. Uh, but, but what Jesus models is a different uh, way of being in the world, a different value system. And uh, what we've seen, I think, is, is the reality, the truth of the uh, power and the virtue of humility. And now the West, in some ways, embraces humility. And uh, they've forgotten that that traces its roots back to Christ, um, doing something that would have been despised in that time. Uh, what is humility? Paul defines this as uh, valuing others above yourself. As you see in verse 3, uh, humility, rather than humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. So um, despite this being a, a despised trait, it's... Um, it's a proper thing uh, for Christians. Um, to value others' needs above yourself, uh, as Paul's writing the Philippians, remember they're undergoing persecution. And that persecution is not simply physical. Uh, we can't think of persecution in the first century simply as uh, putting people in prison or beatings or torture, although it can include those things. But it's also social and economic persecution. So you have uh, a group of people who are relying on the business they are getting uh, they're selling and trading and so forth, who because they are Christians are no longer part of the trade guilds that sacrifice to gods. And if you're not part of the trade guilds, that means you're going to be making a lot less money and you're going to have a lot harder time making ends meet. And so as Paul calls them to humility and valuing others' needs above yourself, he's saying, look, people are really going to be struggling by taking uh, Christianity seriously. And they're going to be struggling financially and socially. And part of your job as someone, uh, as a person of humility, is to look out for those people. Humility is not self-loathing. It's not, I must be a terrible, awful person. I like C.S. Lewis's uh, way of describing it. He writes, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He won't be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all, uh, which seems to be getting at Paul's point. It's uh, not focused on ourselves, but on others. And now we're about to get to uh, the best part of Philippians to me uh, in 6 through 11 but five sets it up. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Throughout Philippians, Paul will use this language of uh, think. In the NIV, it translates it, have the same mindset. The Greek here is phreneo. This language of phreneo shows up again and again and again. Think this way. Um, 
as, as Paul's about to describe who Jesus is, he's inviting his audience, his hearers, to adopt this perspective on the world. In a society that um, values things that are unimportant to God, he's saying, learn to see the world this way. I was teaching my students uh, on Friday about something very similar, about how we view the world. And so I showed them this commercial. And the tagline of the commercial is, make your life a life worth watching. And the 30 seconds prior to this life worth watching is a life that's basically filled with, with luxury and wealth and beauty and all things that are not bad in and of themselves. I mean, there's no, those are all neutral things, so don't get me wrong here. But, but the implication is that pursuing this is, makes for a meaningful life. So I asked my students, what is the good life according to this? And so they came up with the descriptors that very well fit that version of the good life. And then I read them uh, the Good Samaritan, where someone asked Jesus, essentially, what's the good life? And he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is a life worth watching. Uh, and, and what uh, I was trying to get through to them is converting to Christianity is not simply a conversion of where you go when you die. And I was going to hell, now I'm going to heaven. It's not just a conversion of confession. I used to confess I didn't believe in God, now I confess Jesus is Lord. It's a conversion of the way you see the world as well. It's, it's all of that. So Paul is calling them to a new mindset. What happens if you try to hold on to this version of the good life that that commercial showed, if you want to hold on to this version of the good life where the good life is primarily luxury and wealth and beauty and all this stuff, and at the same time, you try to attach some Christian practices to it, all right, now I've got to somehow practice humility while at the same time trying to you know, bolster myself up. I've, I've got to uh, look for the needs of others while at the same time trying to advance myself. You find that you're in this, um, you're kind of stretched two ways. So what, what Paul and Jesus are calling people to is not keep this same mindset about the good life and now attach a few new Christian values and practices to it. It's adopt a whole new value system. Abandon that value system that says this is the good life and instead look to Christ. He is the one, the true image of God, who shows us life as it's meant to be lived. When you adopt this vision as the good life, then these practices and habits and values don't pull you in two different directions. Instead, it's like, okay, this makes sense. I am living in line uh, with my confession, with my value system. So Christianity we should think of as also a conversion of something like worldviews. Questions on verses 1 through 5 before we get into the maybe the heart of Philippians? Like-minded. That, that, that is what they call people. That's what they, the Christians call each other in Afghanistan. Really? And I had the opportunity to be in the underground church in Afghanistan. That's how they go around. Like-minded. They don't, huh. they don't say church Christ. They don't say Presbyterian. Are you a fellow of like And oh. they actually draw the Christian in the sand to make sure that that's the case. Really? Uh, that's, how they, that's how they identify. Like-minded. Yeah. Wow. Like that's powerful. One description wow. I read this week was that choreography. you got all these different personalities in a church or a body. Mm -hmm. But yet, once we've got our eyes fixed on Coordinated and marching in the same direction, achieving the goals of the Christian life mm -hmm. in many different ways. Yeah. Uh, but the important 
Yeah, that's good. I know very little about uh, music and dance and so forth. So, uh, that's that's a helpful analogy. Uh, I mean, one that I wouldn't have been able to uh, to make. But it's like, oh yeah, that's good for people that think differently. Yeah. Oh yeah. So is our division in the church a, uh, a sign of how we've lost, to some degree, our sense of goal, a shared goal? Oh, yes, in that way, yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, uh, how can I? I'm preferring, and I'm preferring that person's needs over mine. Mm-hmm. That is very counterculture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It absolutely is, yeah. We, we kind of, building off, of, I think, what we learn in the Gospels, there's a, a kind of kinship idea that, that should be a part of the church. That's the way you take care of your family and sometimes put your own yeah. family's needs. That's the, it's not you stop taking care of yourself but it's love your neighbor as yourself kind of thing. And that's what we do in a family. We take care of ourselves, we take care of each other. Sometimes we put our family's needs ahead of our own. Um, so the church is not a collection simply of individuals, but more family. It's hard to do in a church of a thousand or whatever we are, uh, but I think we try to practice this, at least in our small group, uh, as we can. All right, I've got maybe, what time are you getting up here, Hilton? All right, so I'm gonna try to get this in about six or seven minutes, verses six through 11. This might be an old hymn that Paul is borrowing, something that's circulating in the church. You can see the kind of poetic nature of it. Uh, it might be something that he composes, uh, but whatever it is, it's, it's beautiful. So think like Christ Jesus, adopt his system, his value system, his way of understanding the world. Verse six, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Okay, so, NIV says, being in nature, God. The language being there is, is a participle, and all you need to know about that is that could equally well be translated because he is in nature, God. Not in spite, even though he's God, he's going to do this, but precisely because this is who God is. Precisely because this is our God, here is how he is going to be in the world. And as we're going to read the next few verses, that just makes so much sense. Who is my God? Let me tell you, because he is God, here is what he does. Being in very nature God. The language there might be in the form of God, which is not to say God has a physical form, uh, but our English words just cannot capture something like how you describe God. Everything we're going to use is going to be limited, but as it's going to be clear, he is God. The, The Nicene Creed, which has been quoted across centuries, across churches, across the globe, 
True God from true God. True God from true God. Light from light. Because he is God, what is he going to do? He is not going to consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Um, yours might say something to be grasped. That might give this inaccurate view like he can't reach it. Oh, I can't reach that. No, it's he's not, because he is God, he's not going to be uh, using that, um, that kind of invulnerability, the rights of God. I think what's being implied here is he's going to give up some of that. He's not going to be less God, but he's going to be uh, less invulnerable as he becomes human. Lauren, you know more theology than I do. Is that my off base in, in understanding that? So verse 7, I don't like the NIV here. NIV says he made himself nothing. Uh, the language is kino'o, he empties himself. He, he doesn't cease to be God, uh, but he doesn't, as we just read, use that to his own advantage. By taking the nature of a servant. Here's where we need to use the language of slave. It's the exact same word in Greek. We sometimes translate it the kind of easier, lighter servant. But slave works very well here. Taking the very nature of slave. This is powerful language. Remember, not in spite of him being God, because he is God. This is what our God does. Tell me about your God. I will tell you about my God. He is amazing. He is love to his core. My God is a God of cruciform, serving love. And you may tell you why, because he lived it out. It wasn't just kind of theoretical. He put it into practice. Taking the very nature of a servant. This is Paul's identity. Remember verse 1, slave of God. He's going to describe Timothy, slave of God. He's going to describe Epaphroditus, servant of God. He calls people to be slaves of righteousness. Who Jesus is is who we become. Jesus embodies this in foot washing, and as he's about to point to crucifixion, Cicero, an ancient Roman historian, calls crucifixion the punishment of slaves. This is our God. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Again, language here fails us. It's not he's kind of like human, but you can't describe someone who's fully God and fully human uh, in any proper way. So he, God becomes flesh, and not just in um, a kind of invulnerable sense, but as he becomes human, verse 8, found in appearance as human, he humbles himself and becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. What did Paul just call people to? Humility, putting others' needs above themselves. God doesn't just say, I want you to do this and I'm going to stand back. He models it to the full extent. Putting others' needs above himself, obedient to God's will. It's not as though God's like, I want to strike them down. Jesus is like, no, I'll take the hit for them. God's will is that we might be redeemed. And Jesus says, how can I be a part of that, in a sense? It's not God the Father versus Jesus the Son. It's God's will is for this to be done, and Jesus is obeying that will by making it possible. Love starts with the, or is with the Father and with the Son, this desire to redeem. We cannot put Jesus uh, and the Father in, um, in this conflicting image. He is fully God, and precisely because God, he goes to death on a cross. The Apostles' Creed says he descended to the dead or descended to Hades. Jesus didn't appear to die. He didn't wait to the last moment and kind of escape that. He, he met us completely in our humanity, all the way to the point of death, full-on death. God becomes human and dies. Why? 
precisely because this is the character of who he is. It is not faked. Uh, it is real. Verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place. Therefore, what a word. This is Greek. Dio. This is emphatic almost. You might circle the word therefore. Not in spite of. We've got to be thinking precisely because. This is our version of the good life. This is the model. This is the mindset. What is life as it's meant to be lived? Precisely because this is the life Jesus lived, he is rightly exalted to the highest place and given the name that is above every name. What is the name above every name? Well, we're told in verse 11, it's the name Lord. And in case you're not picking up on what that means, Paul's going to make it more explicit in verse 10. Lord is Yahweh. Jesus is not a partial God or this kind of uh, super special prophet. He is God. God gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is, being, this is language from Isaiah 45. In Isaiah 45, who is the one who every knee will bow to and every tongue will confess? It is Yahweh. Who is it in Philippians? It is Jesus. Early, early, early. This is like 20 years. 20 years after Jesus' death, Christians are already recognizing Jesus was God in the flesh. What could only be spoken of Yahweh is spoken of of Jesus. And it's spoken of of Jesus as he's revealed as the one who willingly suffers, is humiliated, and dies on the cross. This is the nature of who God is. And precisely because of that, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is kind of metaphoric language. In heaven, the spiritual beings, angels, demons, on earth, those living under the earth, those who are dead, all will confess who this is, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not Caesar, not the one ultimately at whose hands he was crucified. Caesar might seem like Lord to the ancient Roman world. But every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that the true Lord is the one who was crucified. And that he was crucified proves proves that's evidence that he is God because this is the nature of who God is and this is to the glory of God the Father. All right, Hilton. I have a quick question. Yes, I'm sorry. by all means. What, what do you think is at stake in verse 6? In the, like I, we have the NRSV here in translating that as though he was in the form of God instead of because. Um, or what, what's the decision making there? So it's, a, it's just a random participle, and you can make that although, or because, or in spite of. Uh, I think it's intentionally ambiguous. I think although works in one sense because you're saying, although God, he does something unexpected. But we couple that with because he's God. So I think that both work as long as, I think just the because we miss. So yeah, that's why I wanted to emphasize like it. Vital. It's beautiful, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Wish it <laughs> yes. A couple of other thoughts. Back to verse 4 about looking out after each other's best interest and not your own. Uh, have you ever known people that just don't do anything for themselves? They're always looking after everybody else but nothing about themselves. And that's, if you first glance, you might think that's what that tells you. But it's sort of, uh, with further investigating this, don't uh, look after your own at the expense of others. Leave time in your life for service to others. But you're supposed to love yourself, too, and love your family and take care of yours, but leave time, not at the expense of others, just uh, at your own. Uh, Sally and I attended a, a memorial service yesterday down in Alabama for, for a girl I went to school with from second grade all the way through high school. 
then she went off to college. I never dated her. We were just friends. Uh, she went off to a different college. I went my own way. We, <laughs> later on, we uh, lived in Atlanta. We had dinner a number of times with she and her husband and just kind of stayed it in the peripheral uh, orbit over the years. She suffered from uh, crippling uh, arthritis, but she was always a person that was always, you, you could never ask her about her because she was asking you about you and getting you to talk about you and your family, what you were doing, what you were accomplishing. She was just this kind of person that almost to the uh, uh, lack of her own was always looking after the best interests of others. And just as Josh said on in this, this uh, five through 11 is really the a classic statement of what we believe as Christians. This is the heart. Jesus is God. He came to this earth in the form of man, but he did not give up his divinity. He could have called down legions of angels to save himself on that cross. He chose voluntarily not to. And as Randall and I were talking this morning, this is something I hope we have an opportunity to sit in some of those Bible classes in, the, in heaven and somebody... Help us do it in a, in a mind that's crippled by our own humanity now. Uh, we can't quite grasp how can this all be. Maybe we'll get a better better look at it at that point. And uh, as you said, the idea of power, what, what a powerful king or, or a ruler does in that day would be modeled by Caesar and, and Alexander. They conquered the world. They set up governments. They built roads. Uh, they did all the things that powerful people do. And what does Jesus do? He humbly goes from town to town uh, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven and dies on a cross, which is quite the different norm. Uh, Adam and Eve grasped at the idea of what God was when they, they ate the fruit. They, they thought they could be like God. Uh, but this really says, be careful what you wish for because this is the attitude of God, really, is to give yourself for others. All right, so verse 12. Uh, so, my dear people, you always did what I said, so please carry on the same way. What is not here in this, this verse? He says, you, you always did what I say, so carry on. Sometimes I didn't say what he said. Well, sometimes I did, but what, what did he say for them to do? What you don't have here is some long list of commands. We, you know, we, we got a personal letter uh, from Paul to the Philippians uh, about their welfare, and, and you've got this big statement of theology in five through eleven, and then he just kind of on an aside, you always did what I said, so please carry on in the same way. But we don't have that list. And those of you who've been in our tradition for a long time, we we like lists, don't we? And we probably enjoy a list. Yeah, I got that one. That one? Got that one. But that's not the idea with Jesus. He has this broad standard we we aim for. I like choreography. How, do, how dare you? I'm <laughs> <laughs> show you that an accountant can think of creative things. Yeah. I, I used to be on one edge of Myers Briggs. I moved to the middle. <laughs> that's the challenge you have. <laughs> All right. All right. So anyway, uh, not just because I'm I was there with you, but much more because I'm not. In other words, because you love me, don't don't think I've got to come back and police you or 
check, check off that list, but because you do love me, you'll continue. And then this, uh, this, this verse, your, your task is now to work out, to work at bringing about your own salvation, and naturally you'll be taking this with other righteousness. All right, some of you theologians out there, tackle that. Uh, salvation is grace. Here's work out your own salvation. George? Weighing on that for us. I was just pondering what you were going to say. The idea of fear and trembling is not a popular one these days. It doesn't pack the pews like it right. Randall? I just, I have, the very first thing that Josh said when he came to this church is, said, all you all work out all y'all salvation on y'all. All y'all work out all y'all salvation. Well. There's a call there, right, that you've got, you have God at work in you. So there's a call to trust the Spirit, the guidance of the Spirit. You don't have to rely solely on the instruction of the teacher. Yeah. A, yeah, what, yeah, as you think about it, He's converted pagans who may not have known anything about the one God. No doubt, because of the power of being an apostle, he has granted some spiritual gifts to people, the ability to teach, preach, whatever. But as evidenced by uh, Peter and other apostles, even they who had the baptism of the Holy Spirit in measures beyond what we have, they had to struggle with making it become personal. And uh, I think that's what he said. Not because you want to earn your salvation. You've got that. But now what are the implications of your salvation? You know, with every... With every yeah. Paul had... Yeah. I mean, Paul had a steep work for us. I mean, he was completely, you know, going the wrong direction. And, he's, you know, and then he so went off into the desert for a while. But I think he's saying that, hey, I had to figure... said earlier was it makes sense to me because you're not going to get it. If you're expecting the preacher to come in and give you a laundry list of this is what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to do it and this is what you know, we can even carry a step further. Churches aren't supposed to be robotic, you know, versions of each other. You know, maybe this church has you know, worked that out for themselves. It's not just a carbon copy everywhere of all. Yeah, I, I, one one uh, commentator I read uh, said, "Work at, working it out. What this work out? What this business of being saved means? What is this business of being saved? What does it mean to me in my stage of life? I mentioned, you know, I'm now in my uh, early seventies. Whatever stage of life you're in, what are the implications of being saved to you and me?" What does it mean for me now as an elder statesman? I truly am an elder now. You know, I, I didn't do it. I was asked to, to be an elder when I was 38 or 39. I, I turned it down. I had teenage children. I, I thought, I'm not an elder. I didn't feel like I was an elder. Well, now I'm an elder whether I want to be or not, age-wise, <laughs> age-wise at least. Uh, I may not have all the qualifications that I would like to be a, a spiritual elder of a church, but, but what is this? This be this business of being saved mean how how our lives changed, etc.
I, I think that would be a great, great way to put it. Take it seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's quickly go. There must be no grumbling, disputing, anything you do. That's a real, that's a high standard to live up to, isn't it? That nobody will be able to fault you. You'll be pure and spotless, children of God. Yeah. You're to shine among the light, like lights of the world, clinging on the word of life. That's what I will be proud of on the day of the Messiah. So Paul will look forward to being, say, yes, these are my children in the, in, in the kingdom. Father, these are my children. I'm proud of them. It will prove that I didn't run a useless race. Yes, even if I'm poured out to be a drink offering, he's seeing what may happen to himself uh, as you go. Okay. All right, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Now, Timothy's the young man that he uh, meets either in Derby or Lystra, takes him along with him. He's traveled with him, preached with him, apparently really loves Timothy. He says, I hope to send him to see you so that I may in turn be encouraged by getting news about you. I have nobody else of his quality. He will care quite genuinely about how you are. Everybody else you see looks after their own interests, not those of Jesus. I read that this week. Did you read it this week? What does that sound like? I have nobody else but Timothy. Everybody else looks after their own interests. Favoritism, maybe? Well, I was just thinking how great would it be to have Paul say that about him. Okay. That's first take of it. Maybe this is a real boost to Timothy to compliment him in this way. Being a negative person I am <laughs> at times, not always. I, I, well, I think in everything, Satan tolerates your being willing to do anything as long as you can get develop into the wrong motive for doing it. You can start the most the greatest benevolent program, but eventually it becomes an economic enterprise. Uh -huh. Satan lets you continue and let it grow as long as you can get the wrong point of view in administering it. Yeah. But it's quiet and dying, and maybe you know, I, my first impression was this is kind of a sour comment. Everybody else. Surely everybody else, not everybody. What about Luke? What about Luke? He's there with him. What about there's others in the entourage? Are they all selfish? Yeah, Timothy is special. Well, maybe as I as I as I kept reading, well, maybe it is giving Timothy a boost. Uh, were there was there was there any trouble among colleagues, or is it just Paul's humanity? By making a broad statement like this, we call it, uh, I'm not a psychologist, uh, but I think it's called overgeneralization. You're saying something so broad that it applies to everybody when it really doesn't. Like all Auburn graduates are great. We know that's not true. Uh, so, so anyway. It's a reminder that we we got to be careful over-literalizing everything Paul says. Yeah. It's the Church of Christ. Uh, yeah if, you, if you're, yeah, if you're looking at this, as, again, I, it's, this may just be a human glimpse at Paul. At, you know, he's sitting in prison, after all. 
or at least confinement in a house. Verses 25 through 30, uh, quickly. Uh, but I did think it was necessary to send Epaphroditus now. After all, they sent Epaphroditus to him with some financial help. And, and uh, he said, he's my brother. He's worked alongside me, fought alongside me. Uh, he almost died, apparently, was ill. And he, he took uh, pity on him. So anyway, from Paul's perspective, he's sending this, this person back uh, and reminds them that we're all fully human. And here, Epaphroditus is highly complimented and wasn't, perhaps wasn't included in that verse about I have no one else like him. So again, these verses, I think, show you, again, Paul is Paul. But in the, in the 5 through 11, you have the essence, one of the principal tenets of Christianity. Jesus is God and is now worthy of the praise he will get in the end. Any questions or comments about anything before we close? Josh, any final summary? Laura? Anybody? With Timothy and Epaphroditus, I think one of the neat things to see is that they, Paul shows them as models of what Jesus has just been about. Jesus is a model of humility and putting others' needs above themselves. Timothy is one who puts needs above himself. Epaphroditus is one who does it to such an extent that he almost dies. So here we have, like, you know, people who are carrying this out. Um, and in 12 and 13, the, the Greek piece of that that I might add, when Paul says, work out your salvation, there's this Greek in uh, ergeo, because God works in you. God ergeos in you. So you see this very close partnership. As you're working at this, God is in partnership with you. And it's not um, that, as it says in 13, I love 12 and 13, God not only helps you work it out, but to will it. So he's not saying, have the attitude of Jesus Christ, good luck, you're on your own, but have this attitude of Christ because Christ is in you making that possible, making what was not possible possible. If you have any encouragement in being united with Christ, absolutely. What was impossible for is now possible. Um, and uh, the last little piece of this, um, work out your salvation. Uh, you could also translate that as embody or carry out. If your salvation is not only where you're going when you die, but that you're going to be conformed to the image of Christ, so you're not going to just be you. You're going to be you conformed to the image of Christ. Then what it means to carry that out is to even now begin to embody, to carry out that Christ-likeness. 
uh, in who you are. That's how one might embody their salvation. Okay. Charles? One funny comment. Mm-hmm. You said the, the, the effect on the world was the individual Christian shining as a light in the world. The light that one shines is good works. The biggest mistake that I think Christianity makes is thinking the church is created under good works, when really it's a thousand lights in the community, not a benevolent committee on a corner. All right, next week we're going to do chapter 3. You will get your reminder email. Okay. Thank you for being here. Yeah. 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 Yeah.